after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a young woman who had become a Christian, and she was asked how she came to faith. And they asked, was there a church in your village? And she said, no, there, there wasn't. The communists had closed down all the churches. There weren't allowed to be any uh, churches in our area. And they asked, well, was there a, uh, did you have like a, a grandmother or a great-grandmother that, that still remembered Christianity and maybe uh, she taught you uh, secretly and that's how you found out? And she said, no. Uh, all of my family members, they were all atheists. None of them were believers at all. They said, well, did you have some sort of uh, secret home Bible study that you were a part of? Or was there uh, some kind of uh, underground church that ministered to you, and that's how you learned? And she said, no, that's not it. And they said, well, what happened? And uh, this young Christian said, quote, she said, at funerals, we were allowed there to recite the Lord's Prayer. And as a young child, I heard these, these strange words and had no idea who we were talking to, what the words meant, where they came from, or why we were reciting them. When freedom came at last, I had the opportunity to search for their meaning. When you are in total darkness, the tiniest point of light is very bright. And for me, the Lord's prayer was that point of light. By the time I found its meaning, I was a Christian. We are in uh, Luke chapter 11 again today. If I encourage you to uh, turn to that passage. We're looking at uh, the Lord's Prayer again. As found in the uh, Gospel of Luke, there's another version that is in Matthew. And as we pointed out last time, uh, Luke's version, as Luke was directed by the, the Holy Spirit under the inspiration of God, uh, happens to be a little bit shorter than Matthew's version, which you might be more used to reciting. And there could be multiple reasons for that. We said it could be very likely Jesus taught his disciples to pray on more than one occasion and maybe uh, gave a, a shorter form sometimes, maybe used uh, some different words that basically meant the same thing. So that could be one explanation for this. And it could just be that uh, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, kind of gave us the, the Reader's Digest version here. But even the parts that are not... Uh, explicitly recorded in Luke are still there implicitly. When we read between the lines, there's nothing really missing in the content. And one of the things that we said last week that's actually uh, helpful about realizing this is that the Lord's Prayer isn't meant to be a magical spell where just saying the, wor the, the words uh, exactly is what matters. It's the meaning behind the words. So there's different ways that you can say it. As long as you're, we're expressing the same ideas, this can be a good guide, a good template for our prayer life. And so whether you can and you do, whether we pray the Lord's Prayer together or you pray it individually, that can be a great thing. Uh, it can also be something that's a reminder. If you go through as you're praying, are you hitting these different types of areas? Or are we just praying about uh, our needs, our wants, and forgetting about praying for the Lord's holiness, for his glory, for, the, for his, his rule to be established. There could be different ways, maybe it's that you want to put this into practice. Thinking about it, uh, we, we're breaking this down into kind of six lines for the Lord's Prayer. If you had six people in your family, you could 
at lunch today, you could divide it up and have each person uh, put each of these sections into their own into their own words. You could pray one of these sections each day for the next uh, six days. But either way, this is helping us to realize these are the type of things that God is instructing us. These are good. We should be praying these type of things. And there's so much truth that we can get out of these. So let's read again Luke chapter 11, verse 1 through 4. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. We will look at... uh, these words again this week. Next week we'll still be on prayer as we continue the section in uh, Luke 11. But to give a little bit of recap from last week, we looked at, and he says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And if we wanted to, we didn't do this last time, we could remember this kind of with, uh, with three R's. When we think of Father, we said we're being instructed and being told we have the privilege of praying to God as our Father. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been adopted into his family, you have this, this family relationship with him. So we remember who he is and we remember our relationship to him. And this is the, the context in which we are able to offer this prayer. And that's such a huge thing. We pray for his reputation. That's what it means for his name to be hallowed for his, his reputation, his name, to be lifted high, to not be tarnished, but to, to be upheld, to be considered holy, for God to be, to be glorified. We want that to happen. And then, your kingdom come. We're praying for his rule, for his rule to come on earth. And one day, it will come fully when Jesus Christ returns and he sets up his kingdom on this earth. And in the meantime, we want... Uh, him to be ruling uh, through the hearts of his people in our lives. We want to be doing what we can to, to make this world, uh, give it a foretaste of, of the kingdom of God, where there is righteousness, where there is, where there is justice. So week one, last week, these, this, these elements are the vertical relationship between us and, and God. We're praying for him. And I think it's important for us to remember when we pray, don't just start with us and our needs, which is what we tend to do. We're even praying for other people. Spend time adoring God. Spend time worshiping him. Spend time magnifying his name. Put him first, because his glory is even more important than our needs. But what we see here in this next section is that it is still okay to be praying for our needs. We have a lot of needs. We do uh, need things day by day. It, it is okay to be praying uh, for health, uh, for those that, that are sick, those that need safety. And so we see the elements that we're going to talk about today. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So uh, slightly different words used than in Matthew, but with the same basic meaning. 
And then lead us not into temptation. And Matthew also adds, and deliver us from evil, but that is implied in here as well. So as we look at these three sections, we're going to see how this also counters so many of the things that are part of our, our sin nature and so many of the things that our world and society tells us that we're supposed to be. Because according to the world, they'll value people that are, that are self-dependent. You don't need anyone else. You can depend all on yourself. People value those that are self-righteous. They can uh, feel that they have done right all the time and we have this sinful desire to justify ourselves. And we also tend to be self-confident. And the world will tell you that. Find all your confidence you need in yourself. And I think each of these uh, sections here has a word to say to us about that as well. So when you pray, as Jesus taught us, we can pray for provision. Have three R's for this first section. We'll do three P's for the section. Provision. Pray that God will give you provisions for your daily physical needs. It's interesting. The word translated daily, I read, it appears nowhere else in, in Greek. And scholars debate if it should be translated as to mean basically today's bread or possibly tomorrow's bread. But either way, the point is about getting our needs met one day at a time. And that's the way God tends to do it. We would love to have it where he gives us you know, 20 years at a crack. And then we don't have to worry about it or, or pray to him or depend on him. That's what would happen. But he gives us our needs one day at a time, knowing what we will need each day, knowing what we will face each day. And so if there are a few truths that we can pull out of this, uh, one would be that in praying this, we admit our absolute dependence on God. That we stand continuously in absolute dependence on him. And maybe people in the ancient world realize that a little bit more quickly than, than we do. Because probably, probably no one here has ever faced real starvation. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but most of us, we have never faced the, the actual uh, dilemma of we might die soon for not having enough food. Uh, we live uh, in a country where even the poorest of the poor usually are in no real danger of starving to death anytime soon. We may have less than we want or less than, less than we need at times, but there are people in the world that literally, they don't know where their next bite is going to come from. And they may not have a bite for a long time. There are people in other places in the world and other times in history, this was very real. That they, there was not a, sh a truck shipment that was going to come in uh, to bring food to the grocery store if the crops failed. They had to pray to God and trust that he would provide their daily needs. Sometimes it's tough for us to realize that because we have so much so easily, we can forget how dependent we really are on God. And if you think you don't depend on God, well, just see how long you can hold your breath. 
Okay, can you hold your breath long enough for you to make your own air out of nothing? Okay, if you fail that test, it should be a reminder that we need God. Uh, for every bite that we take, every air, uh, gulp of air that we breathe in, of his air that he's created, we need him. We fool ourselves into thinking anything else. When we pray this prayer, not only are we admitting our dependence on God, but also we're trusting that God will take care of our needs. We're trusting that Jesus is telling us to pray this to God because God is going to hear this. He's going to answer this prayer. He will provide what we need. And there'll be more about this in Jesus' teachings in the next verses that we'll talk about next week. God will take care of our needs. Maybe realize, uh, we think about bread and uh, having bread all the time. I, I realize there's a hymn about baking bread all day long. Do you know which one I'm talking about? So I, I need thee every hour. I am not ashamed of that joke. I've decided I'm going to stand by that one. <laughs> I've been waiting to use that one for far too long to be ashamed of that one. I need thee every hour. I probably just wrecked that hymn for you now. <laughs> but the truth is we do, we do need him, and he will provide these needs. This, I think this is not just talking about bread. God need, knows all of the different physical needs that we have besides bread. Uh, obviously, we need water. We need air. We need health. We need all these things. And you may not even realize what you need tomorrow, but God does, and he's preparing it. Ask him for this, and he'll provide this. Notice it says bread, not cake. Okay, I have a son that would love to pray, uh, you know, give me this day my daily cheesecake. Okay, and maybe that's some of us here. And God often gives us way more than, uh, than we need. But this isn't a promise that he'll always give us everything that we want. We do, we, oftentimes we confuse our wants with our needs, this is about our needs, not our, not our greeds. Jesus isn't saying, give us this day our daily wants. But we can trust him to give us what we actually do need. And praying this, when we do this, this breaks down our self-sufficiency. This is also one of the things that it does for us. We pray for, to God, and there's going to be more on this next week, about how God gives, gets the glory when we ask him and he gives us what we need, because as the giver, he gets the glory from that. But one of the things that it also does to us in our lives that changes us is uh, this breaks down this sinful idea of, of self-sufficiency that we have, that we tend to think, I'm, I can do anything, I'm sufficient, I don't need anyone else, and that is an illusion. If you pray this and we mean it, it helps to break that down in our hearts, and that is a good thing. Also, let me tell you a bonus uh, application that we can get from this stands in the Lord's Prayer as well. And this is something that Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, pointed out very well. This stanza, if you think about this, this dignifies work. This dignifies regular, uh, just honest work, no matter what your calling is, if you have an have a honest job that you are going to, think about what this means. Because when we pray, Martin Luther pointed this out, when you pray, 
Father, give us our daily bread. How does God usually answer that prayer? Now, God could, uh, like he did with the Israelites, and we saw this in Exodus, uh, he could give manna from heaven. And I think that's part of what uh, you know, people hearing Jesus uh, uh, teach this, they would have been reminded of that, that there was a time uh, where God did give them daily bread from heaven. It appeared each day, and it, they couldn't store it. It didn't, it didn't last except on the, the Sabbath, and uh, they had to get new every morning, but they trusted that God was faithful to give them new every morning. God could do that. Okay, so you could pray, God, give me my daily bread, and it could be like a Star Trek replicator. Okay, Earl Grey hot, here it is. But that's not normally how God does it with manna from heaven. Normally, how he gives us our bread is through farmers and millers and bakers. Right? He gives it through a farmer raising the grain, a miller grinding the grain, and the bakers baking it into bread, and there's other people involved too, and through this process we get our daily bread. And think of all the different needs that people have. And if you are employed in a calling that helps people with the real legitimate needs they have, you know, having hot water in the morning so they can take a shower, thanks to the, the, uh, the, the hot water heater that, that you help make, or whatever it is. And you're driving the truck to get the things from point A to point B so that things can keep moving. It's part of answering this prayer. And this gives dignity to all good, honest work that we do. So we pray for God to give us our daily bread. Second, so it's provision, we can talk about pardon. We pray that God will give us uh, pardon as also we forgive those who have, have wronged us, as you forgive those who have, have wronged you. So first we talked about bread. We're praying for physical needs, and there could be all kinds of things under that. And now we start to talk about our spiritual needs. Because as much as you and I need bread, we need food, can't live without it, we need God's forgiveness we need his grace even more than that. So some of the truths that we can pull out thinking about this uh, stanza in the Lord Prayer, it makes us realize that forgiveness is necessary. If you were a perfect person, you would not need to pray this line. If you were completely self-righteous, if you had never sinned, if you, had, uh, if you were unfallen, there's no need for you to pray for forgiveness. Only, only sinners need to pray for forgiveness. But that's who we are. And that's part of what Jesus is telling us in this, that we approach God, yes, he's our Father, but we approach him as people that we realize we are sinners, we have sinned, we need that forgiveness uh, from him, and that's just a reality. Too many people in the world, they don't want to ask for forgiveness. They would rather justify themselves, to make excuses, explain things away. At the worst, oh yeah, people make mistakes. Maybe I've made some mistakes. But it takes humility. It takes conviction. It takes God's work in our heart to really admit, I've sinned before a holy and awesome God. And I deserve condemnation. 
That's what I deserve. That's what I have coming to me. Instead, I ask God for his forgiveness. Not to just excuse what I've done. And he says, oh, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. The sins I've committed, the sins you've committed. We need forgiveness from him. Praying this, we realize, we acknowledge that we sin and we fall way short. We have a huge debt. If you want to wreck your day sometime, okay, if your day is going too good and you just want to wreck it, uh, go look at the National Debt Clock. Okay, go to usdebtclock.org and just stare at the screen for a while and watch the numbers keep, you know, it will wreck your day real fast. Uh, 21 trillion and counting. And it gets bigger every day. And without Christ, the debt that we have before God is even bigger than that. Because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And how much, how wrong is it, even the, the quote-unquote smallest sin, if it's against an infinitely holy God, is infinitely terrible. Our debt is huge. It gets bigger every day, and we can't even pay the interest on it. You could try to do some good things, thinking, well, I'm going to pay this off, but we're not even chipping away at the interest in this debt we have. We need someone else that is able to pay off that debt that sin debt in our place. A beautiful thing about these words that Jesus taught us to pray, if he's telling us to pray to God, forgive us our sins, it's implying good news. Forgiveness is available. We take that for granted sometimes. But why should it have to be available to us? This is This is good news. This is a huge blessing. This is a bigger blessing than if someone was able to to pay off the the national debt. That someone has paid off the debt for uh, all of humanity that will trust Jesus Christ as Savior. That someone has the resources to be able to do that. Praise God that forgiveness is available, and it's available through the one that taught us to pray this, through Jesus Christ. That we have a, a debt we could not pay, and he paid this debt he did not owe. You can't earn forgiveness. We don't deserve forgiveness. What we deserve is justice. If you want to go by what you deserve, well, what you deserve is, is called a wage. And Scripture says the wages of what we have done, the wages of sin, is death, eternal death. But the gift of God, this huge gift, is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Forgiveness is not something you earn. It's something you receive when someone, if someone offers it to you. And it always means that someone else has absorbed the cost. Colossians 2, 13-14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, how did he do it? Nailing it to the cross. When we see the cross, when we think about the cross, 
when we take the Lord's Supper and we remember what Christ did for us on the cross, it was him doing what was required to pay off our debt, the sin debt that we have. And only he could do it because he is the only one that came into the world without a debt. He had no debt of his own to pay off. But he assumed he took on our debt on himself when he went to the cross. He became a a, a sinner for us, even though he had never personally sinned. He had to become a human being to do this. And the Savior had to be God in order for his sacrifice to be valuable enough to pay off a debt this large. This is a huge thing. And if, if we grasp this, this should change our heart and our attitude towards others as well. We realize we've forgiven this, this massive debt. And therefore we see in this passage as well, because Jesus says, uh, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So the other side of this, we've been forgiven, and if we're praying this prayer, it means that we're also giving our forgiveness to people that have wronged us, to people that have wronged you. And there are people that probably have wronged you, that have done legitimate bad things to you, that have hurt you, sometimes on purpose. And sometimes they enjoyed sticking the knife in and twisting it. And God's saying that when we think about the forgiveness that Jesus has, done to, has given to us, that changes our hearts so that instead of just saying, it's payback time. We're able to offer from our hearts the, that type of forgiveness to them. To release them from the, the bitterness and hatred in our heart. So we can be praying for them that if they have not received Jesus Christ, that they would receive the ultimate forgiveness that they need from him too. It changes our hearts. Let me clarify. We are not forgiven because we forgive. We forgive because we are forgiven. Let me put it another way. We're not saved because we forgive. We forgive because we are saved. Colossians 3.13 says this, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. We're forgiven people, and forgiven people forgive other people. Yes, it's hard. And oftentimes they don't make it right ahead of time. You know, and if they made it right, we wouldn't have to forgive them. I mean, if someone paid off a debt, then you don't have to forgive their debt, do you? So by definition, we're forgiving someone that hasn't, hasn't completely made things right. But do you realize we can't actually pray this prayer unless we're willing to do that? Because we're saying the words that we're forgiving other people. So when you go pray the Lord's Prayer, we have to do a heart check. Are there people that we still are harboring bitterness and unforgiveness against in our hearts? Because when we are uttering these words, we are forgiving other people. You're either, you either mean that and you are forgiving them as you are saying that. Or you're speaking lies as you're praying the Lord's Prayer. Forgiveness is hard. It takes God's grace in our hearts. But God is the God that gives grace in our hearts. And he changes us. And there's people in this room, I know, that have been able to forgive people that you would have thought there's no way 
you could forgive that kind of hurt and that kind of betrayal, but you've been able to because God worked in your heart and, and released that bitterness. I pray that God would keep working in your heart to do that. It's good for your heart, and it pleases the Lord very much. And we pray this, oh, this breaks down our self-righteousness. Because we tend to be self-righteous. We want to justify ourselves. But when we pray this, we're admitting that we're sinners. We're admitting we're not righteous of ourselves. We need a different righteousness. We need this righteousness that comes from the outside, from Jesus Christ, that is credited to us. And forgiving others also shows that we're, it's breaking down our self-righteousness. Because when we harbor unforgiveness, well, it shows that in our hearts we're thinking that somehow I measure up more than they do. And therefore, I can, I'm up here, they're down there, so I can hold this over their head and I can not forgive them. It show, when we don't forgive other people, it shows that we're operating by some kind of legalism instead of operating by grace. So we need to pray for God's pardon, his forgiveness. And finally, we also pray for protection. For protection uh, from the enemy. Protection from temptations to sin. So in the line that we have here in Luke, and lead us not into temptation, shows that we pray that God will give us protection from temptation to sin. There was a A dad told his son, he said, son, uh, don't swim in the river. And the son said, okay, okay, dad. But he came home later that day uh, carrying a wet swimsuit. And the father demanded, son, where have you been? And the son said, was swimming in the river. The dad said, didn't I tell you don't swim in the river? Yes, sir. The boy responded, well, why did you? Well, Dad, he explained, I had my swimsuit with me, and I I just couldn't resist the temptation. Father asked him, well, why did you take the swimsuit with you? He replied, so I'd be prepared to swim in case I was tempted. We pray for God to uh, not lead us into temptation, This is a commitment to our own personal sanctification. We're forgiven. We receive God's grace. But we're not going to use God's grace as just a sin all I want card. I'm forgiven, therefore it's okay for me to sin. It's okay for me to live the the same old life. For me to do all these things that displease God. No, when we're saved, it changes our heart. So we want to please God by resisting the temptation to do anything that is outside of his moral will for us. And we look in Scripture to learn what God's moral will is. And there may be things that we don't like, and we think, well, this is not how I want to live, but we change. And we say, well, I'm going to live according to the way that you say, because you're the God that made me. You're the God that supplies my needs. You're my Father in heaven. You died for me. And if we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we had just prayed for his, his rule to come on this earth, and that includes us. We're not carving out our little section as God rule everywhere else, but, but not in my life. So we want to resist the temptation that comes to us from the devil, 
from the world around us, from our own sinful flesh, to sin and do the wrong things. Some look at this and they ask, well, does this mean that God, does he ever actually lead us into temptation? I mean, if you have to pray, don't lead us into temptation, is it that, well, God, he was right about to do that. And so we're saying, well, God, please don't do that. Well, let me read you a few verses from the book of James that I think help clear this up. In James 1, first of all, in 2 through 3, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So there are trials that come into our life. Then in James 1, 13 through 15, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It talks about trials. It talks about temptations. Actually, the word behind both of those in Greek is the same. And we can have different things that come into our life, but it depends how is it being used. See, Satan wants to use it in one way. God wants to use it in another way. God will test us, but he never wants us to sin. When God brings trials into our life, He's giving us an opportunity not to sin, but, but to resist. He's pulling for us to pass the test. Last semester, I, I taught a semester of uh, medieval church history at the seminary. And so I would give quizzes and exams. And I had to uh, write the exams and, and try to make them difficult. But my goal for the students, I didn't want them to fail. I didn't want to mark them wrong. I wanted them to, to show me that, yes, you, you've learned this. You understand what we're talking about. And some of the students, when they were having a tough time with it, and I knew their, uh, their grades weren't that great, there are times where they do the, the, the quizzes and the exams, and I'm grading them, and I'm, I'm hoping, and I'm cheering for them, like, please get this right, come on, come on. And I'd be happy when they did, and I'd be sad when they didn't. And that's the way, that, somewhat the way God is when he puts these trials in our lives. He's pulling for us to, uh, to give this as an opportunity to, to pass the test, to show that we, we've done the right thing to, to, to please him with this. But there's an enemy that wants you to fail. There's an enemy that, that wants you to uh, succumb to these temptations. And that's what this reminds us of. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil in Matthew or the evil one that there is an enemy that's out there. And there's also an enemy that's in here for all of us as well. And we need God's help to resist this temptation. So one of the things that this teaches us is that we are not immune to temptation and we are not powerful enough to deal with it on our own. Some people just think that they're immune to temptation and those are the people that usually fall into it. If you think you're immune to some type of sin, Satan's going to come after you with that. 
If you think that you could never destroy your marriage, watch out for your marriage. Because Satan has got you in a place where you have let your guard down. We are not immune to temptation. Thinking that is the most dangerous place to be. And it also reminds us we are not powerful enough on our own. We cannot just muster up enough willpower just from our own hearts to deal with this temptation. And maybe you've tried and tried and tried for weeks or months or years, and you're still stuck in the same thing. And no amount of willpower from your own heart is going to help you to break out of this temptation. And the temptations here, this isn't just about addictions, although it can be. It isn't just about alcoholism or lust. All sins that we have are rooted in temptation. To choose something else besides God. Even, even the, the, the nice innocent-seeming sins that really are still a huge affront to God. If the enemy can't get us with one thing, he'll get us with something else. We need to just remember we're not powerful enough to deal with it. But what this also tells us, if Jesus is telling us to pray for this, it's also giving us an indication that God is willing to answer that prayer. It's giving us reason to believe that escaping temptation is possible. Because sometimes people just think, I've dealt with this temptation so long, I'm never going to get out of this, so I might as well just keep doing it. I might as well just stay in the, uh, in, in the mud and muck and mire of this sin, whatever it is, because this is just my life now. I, I can never be free of this. But if Jesus is teaching you to pray this for your temptation, and you can fill in the blank, whatever specifically that is, it's an indication that with God's help, you don't have to give in to that temptation. Paul in, writes this in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I also want to point out, we're praying for God to lead us away from temptation. We're not praying for God to give us the strength to flirt with temptation. If you're at the zoo and there is a, a lion cage there with a lion that wants to eat you, this isn't praying, Lord, keep me safe while I stick my head in this lion cage. Okay, this prayer is saying, Lord, help me not to be dumb enough to stick my head in the lion cage. But so often we just we want the strength to be able to flirt with temptation, kind of get as close as we can to the lion cage, and then just pray for the lion not to get us. Praying this prayer, this breaks down our, our self-confidence, at least the improper type of self-confidence, with emphasis on self, that we are confident in ourselves. We don't need anyone's help to, to resist temptation. We can do this. No, this is saying we have enemies. We have an enemy even in our own heart, our sinfulness, and we cannot just depend on ourselves for this. We need God's help. We need his intervention to resist temptation, to live a life that's going to please God. We think about all these different things, the provision, 
pardon, protection. I guess we could have done three Fs. We could have said food, forgiveness, and faithfulness. But as we think of these things, you realize there's kind of an irony with this in the Lord's Prayer. You know, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but you realize that the Lord Jesus himself couldn't actually pray the Lord's Prayer? Because he, he didn't need to pray for forgiveness, not for himself, because he had never sinned. He didn't, he didn't need forgiveness. So it's a prayer that comes from the Lord, and it's for us to be praying. But when we think about this as well, we realize that Jesus, Jesus Christ our Lord, is the reason that we can pray everything that is in the Lord's Prayer. Because Jesus died on the cross, we can be adopted into God's family and have God as our Father. Jesus paid for our sin, for the holiness of God's name, so that God could forgive us without compromising his holiness. He couldn't just forgive us without it being paid for. It had to be paid for in full. Jesus will return to set up God's kingdom here on earth. We pray for that. We long for that. And Jesus does more than just give us bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And he changes our hearts so that we can forgive others too. And Jesus also sent the Holy Spirit who is with us to give us victory over our temptations and our sins. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, as we prepare to take uh, communion, to remember what you have done for us on the cross, uh, we just give you praise and we, we thank you, Lord God. We live in a, in a sinful, broken world. Lord, we confess that there was once a time when the Lord's Prayer was, was not necessary. In Eden, when you had made Adam and Eve and things were perfect, there were items in here that, that would not have needed to be prayed. Forgiveness was not needed. Your will was already being done on this earth, Lord God. But we admit that we live in a, in a broken, sinful world now. We need each of these things that we pray for, Lord God. But Lord, we also realize that the day will come where much of this prayer will be unnecessary again. When your kingdom has come, Lord God. And when you do rule on earth. But through this all, Lord, we continue to confess you as our Father, through Jesus Christ, our, our brother who has died for us. We thank you for that. Lord God, we ask that your reputation would be lifted high. Lord God, we long for your rule to come, and we ask that it would start in our hearts and in the lives of your church. Lord God, we thank you that you provide for us, and we ask you to provide for our needs each day. And you know the needs of each person in this congregation. Lord God, we ask you to give us forgiveness. Lord, if there's any person here that has never trusted you as their Savior, I pray that they would do so before they leave. 
that they would come to you recognizing that you pay the price for them in full on the cross, that they would give up their self-righteousness and in their hearts, even before they get up, would, would trust you as their personal Lord and Savior. Continue to forgive us each day as we struggle with uh, things that we do wrong and we realize that. Give us hearts to forgive others. And Lord, help us to live lives that are different, that please you. Help us to resist the strong temptations we have to do what is wrong. We give you praise in all these things. And we thank you that we can pray this with confidence through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.